Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Radio Nation, Ring of Fire, and Mother Jones Radio. Questions aside, will the Republican Party retain control of the House and the Senate? What do you think this November? Well, a lot of people are saying they may be in trouble if the political right is divided. Some have looked at the disagreement within the party over torture policy this week and said that that highlights an ideological split. Well, I say much of that is a fake you out. I don't think there's as much of a split over the critical issues of human rights and constitutional rights as the coverage of what happened in the Senate this week would have you to believe. But There is, it seems to me, the possibility that an entirely different and potentially way more dangerous divide does exist. And that is something that is being uh, talked about and expressed by our next guest. Richard Vigory would certainly say that there are important differences that conservatives have with the GOP today, those in charge in the White House. He wrote in the Washington Post on Sunday, May 21st of this year, that the main reason for conservative anger at Bush is he talked like a conservative to win our votes, but he never governed like a conservative. And now, in a recent article in the Washington Monthly, Richard Vigory is saying the show, which is to say the George W. Bush show, must not go on. Richard Vigory is our guest. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Laura. Good to be with you. Very briefly, why do you believe the GOP wouldn't do so bad to lose in November? Well, um, you never go into an election advocating defeat, wanting defeat, anticipating, hoping for it. But I've lived long enough, I've been involved in politics since uh, the 1950s, that I no longer fear defeat. And I've seen... Uh, many times, if not most of the times, our best uh, successes have come after defeats. In 1976, when Ford lost, uh, four years later we had Ronald Reagan. And in my opinion, Ronald Reagan would have never been president of the United States if Ford had been elected in 1976. And in 1994, when Republicans got control of the Congress for the first time in 40 years, that would have never happened had uh, George H.W. Bush been reelected in 1992. So uh, my feeling, is, and a lot of conservatives feel, that we're not going to come to the political promised land as conservatives until we have new leaders. We're kind of like the biblical Jews who had to wander through the desert for 40 years until that generation of corrupt, immoral leaders had passed away. And in many ways, we are in that situation. We well, have what, what, is, what is corrupt and immoral in your view about the Bush White House? Well, many, many things. Uh, he campaigned as a conservative. He promised us he was a conservative. And he's done very little in way of governing as a conservative. In discretionary spending, having nothing to do with national defense, homeland security, has increased 48%. He is, uh, the, uh, has not vetoed a spending bill, which means he approves of all of the increased uh, spending. At the core difference between a conservative and a liberal, Laura, it is the role of government in our life. And it's an article of faith among conservatives that we believe mankind prospers best when government uh, is minimized and individuals uh, are empowered with the maximum amount of, uh, of resources, ability, and talent. And uh, and government gets out of the way, and he has done nothing but act like a, a liberal. If we uh, uh, had seen this under Clinton, this type of, or any Democrat, uh, we would have been outraged. The conservatives uh, would have really been outspoken in their opposition, but I'm afraid conservatives have been too silent because Bush is a uh, is a Republican. Well, maybe because they're giving, they're actually getting in many areas exactly what they do want. I mean, against it or for it, and I was against it, uh, during the Clinton years, you had federal expenditures shrink by one, just over 1%. In the first Bush term, they're up 15%. So you're right. On the question of fiscal conservatism, people are angry, but aren't they getting what they 
want in terms of shrunken government commitments, uh, shrunken taxes, and uh, this unitary executive idea that is basically putting the hands not just of the military but of the whole country into the palms of one man, the President of the United States. Well, that's not, it's not conservative, of course. That's liberal. Uh, where you want to increase the power of the executive. That's what Roosevelt did, and that's what Truman did, and that's, that's not... Uh, I'm talking about concentrating the executive in the hands of one person. Uh, we, we, We've got government of checks and balances as a different thing. Yeah, conservatives want uh, a, a government uh, that has minimum amount of power, but this president has made no serious effort to abolish any significant government program. He engaged in massive expansion of the federal uh, government into education, passed the largest farm bill in the history of this country, has engaged uh, in nation building, and we can agree on that probably. Uh, uh, there's almost a no conservative need apply sign in front of the White House. This is a government that's of, by, for, and behalf of corporate America, Wall Street. Uh, but those Reaganite-type conservatives, Goldwater-type conservatives, they're just uh, not as well uh, have anything to do with this administration. There's just uh, no need for uh, for them to even think about being uh, playing a role in this administration. They just uh, this is a big government uh, administration, and we've we've been there down that road so many times, and we're just sick and tired of it. That's why I wrote the book Conservatives Betrayed. We saw it under Eisenhower, we saw it under Nixon, under Jerry Ford. Under uh, Bob Dole, it would have been the same, uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and conservatives. They, uh, the, the subtitle, by the way, Laura, of my book, Conservatives Betrayed, is how George W. Bush and other big government Republicans hijacked the conservative cause. Well, but let's campaign on our issues. Well, let's back up a second, because I would contest that the way they've hijacked it, you're asking how they hijacked it, they hijacked, if they did, they hijacked the cause that you call the conservative cause using the tactics that you taught them. I mean, the reason the Bush administration is in power today is because he's practicing exactly the kind of with us or against us uh, revenge politics that you perfected to bring Ronald Reagan and his crew to office. I mean, the kind of single-issue veto, uh, um, you know, uh, you're with us or against it, that was your stuff from the from the uh, Panama Canal Treaty and the uh, windfall uh, profits tax. Isn't it your responsibility in part that we have a climate where people will vote against their interests perhaps on, on taxes and on uh, government spending uh, because... Well, he's told them they're either with him or they're with the terrorists. Uh, Laura, that's just not, not, uh, you're not remotely, uh, accurate in what you're saying there. You talked about how we taught, uh, Ronald Reagan and other Republicans about single issues. The only thing that was different from, uh, the old right and the new right back in the 1970s and the 1980s was that we uh, had a commitment to winning, and we used the new technology was out there like, like computers. But we learned uh, from the left. We learned about single issue. You referred to single issue organizations. We learned about that from the left. Ralph Nader is nothing if he is not a collection of single-issue yeah, organizations. But just to be clear, did um, you not, when you were with Vigory Associates, when your direct mail campaigning really took off, did you not, as your tactic, embrace the idea of tagging people with a single vote so that they would be characterized by that one vote on one issue, regardless of what their broader agenda and background was? Laura, you're exactly right, but you, you didn't hear what I was saying. We did that. But what I'm saying, listen carefully, we learned it from the left. <laughs> well, Ralph Nader, George McGovern. What I want to hear is you say well, you're me, sorry about it now. Let me just make this point. In 1971, in 1972, George McGovern traveled the length and breadth of this country saying, make up your mind of who you're going to support for president in 1972 on one issue and one issue only. And then in 1980, when he's running for re-election, he's saying, it's so terrible. People are out there making up their mind on who they're going to reelect or who they want for their senator on one issue. But the left taught us the single-issue strategy. Well, would we not agree, would you not agree at this point that we have seen, as practiced by the right, and maybe the fact is you just got better at it than people have on the liberal side, that you've seen this come back to bite you? Well, I mean, uh, 
Uh, I don't know uh, what it, what's come back to bite us. Uh, we've You've been, got a White House in power on one set of issues that, as you could, if you've yeah. argued, is abandoning your principles on a whole other set of well, issues. They abandoned them. They never accepted them in the first place. They, they just betrayed us as soon as he was elected. He moved uh, moved to the left, as uh, all of these presidents have, except for uh, for Ronald Reagan. You will not miss me. I want to go down in musical history. Frankly, Mr. Shankly, I'm a sickening wreck. I've got the 21st century breathing down my neck. I must move fast. You understand me. I want to go down in celluloid history. Mr. Shankly. Joining us now is Joe Scarborough, former Republican congressman from Florida. He served in the House of Representatives from 1994 to 2001, and now he hosts Scarborough Country on MSNBC. Joe, right-wing, knuckle-dragging Republicans like myself took over Congress in 1994. Uh, and, you know, those were your words out of a great article, by the way, uh, an article that appeared in the Washington Monthly. And on on the front of the uh, Washington Post, didn't it? Yeah. Where you talk about the fact that really, when you were in Congress, when the the team went to Congress, where you were uh, in, in the House of Representatives, you had a plan for how Republicans could do things like balance the budget. When we got elected in '94, we said, if you put us in power, we're going to reduce the size of Washington. We're going to balance the budget. We're going to act responsibly. We're going to reform Congress. We're going to clean up this measure. Dan Rostenkowski going to jail. You had Jim Wright uh, kicked out because of ethics scandals. You had uh, just, it was an absolute mess, the bank checking scandal. And so we were going to clean things up. So now you fast forward 12 years later, we've got the biggest deficit ever. We've got the biggest debt ever. We've got Jack Abramoff scandals, Tom DeLay scandals. You've got Duke Cunningham playing poker with lobbyists who would let him win. You've got hookers going in into the Watergate playing poker. Really, does it not sound like all the king's men? You've got hookers that are going to these poker games, and the FBI believes trading sex for votes. And I'm just sitting here thinking, maybe we've gone a bit off course. You know, I think it's a funny thing. Uh, I've I, I listened to you, uh, the times you've been on Bill Maher and shows like that, where people who know you have followed your career, they understand that at the heart of what you are, you really do believe like a conservative, but at the same time, you're critical of, uh, when you have to be critical. you got to be, yeah. And, you know, Bill Maher the other night was on, and I was critical of the president. It was on my TV show. And he said, but wait, Joe, it's your boy, George Bush. And I immediately cut him off and said, Bill, you know, we've been friends for, you know, 10 years now. You know, George Bush isn't my boy any more than Bill Clinton was my boy, any more than Newt Gingrich was my boy. I've got no boys. I, be I believe what I believe. And listen, you and I believe, I think, in dramatically different things. No, no question. But uh, yeah. here's the deal. If I'm honest about what I believe in and you're honest about what you believe in, we can come to a middle ground. Like, for instance, let's talk about education for a second. I'm just pulling something out of the sky. Well, before you do that, let yeah. me, I do. I, I want to do that, but let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that you've done, uh, you wrote a, a, a book. I don't. I just don't think it got enough attention um, uh, about two years ago. Yeah, it, it made a lot of Republicans very angry because I, I was the first conservative, I think, to go out publicly and attack this White House for spending too much money, for spending us into debt. But one thing you talk about, it's a theme that I've followed when I read what you have to say. I don't, I, I, frankly, I don't see it on your show as much, but I, I, when, you, when I read what you have to say, it is that you think maybe there's some wisdom to having a divided Washington. To I, having, I think it's great. T talk about that. I think it's a great idea. I, because when we got in Congress in 1994, I would take people on tours of, of Congress and... Somebody would always say, every time, you know, they'd see these pictures of uh, our founding fathers in the Capitol Rotunda, and they'd say, why can't you just get along like they did? Why can't you put the interest of America first? And I'd always go over and I'd show them a picture that's in the Rotunda, 
of our founding fathers on July 4th, 1776. And I pointed up, I said, you see that picture right there? That's Thomas Jefferson. Next to him, the short, pudgy guy, is John Adams. And you'll notice that Jefferson's foot is on top of Adams' foot. The reason why is Jefferson hated Adams so much that he paid the artist extra money to put his foot on top of Adams. These guys despise themselves. The campaign of 1800 was the sleaziest campaign in the history of American politics, and that doesn't really disturb me. And the reason it doesn't disturb me is... Well, what comes out of diversity in Washington? Well, that's what I'm saying. The thing is, what I told people is we don't want sleazy campaigns, but... I think America would do very well to have Mike Papantonio on the left debating Joe Scarborough on the right, two guys that respect each other, who know that both guys think that what they believe in is in the best interest of America. We have the debate, and then we compromise. What happens is, like in the 1980s, you had a very conservative president, Ronald Reagan, a very liberal House led by Tip O'Neill, and a fairly liberal Senate led by George Mitchell, and guess what they did? They won the Cold War together. In the 1990s, you had Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress, both of whom hated each other. Guess what we did? We balanced the budget. We won two wars. We reformed welfare. We did some great things. The economy grew at record rates. You look, though, at what has happened since Republicans have had a monopoly of power from 2000 to 2006, It's been horrible. You look at what happened when Bill Clinton had a monopoly of power in 1993, 1994. It was horrible. One party monopolizing the entire scene, I would suggest, is not good for America. But, Joe, it it even goes farther than that. I'm I'm interested to know what your take on it is. If we just said, okay, there is this this monovision that has overrun Washington, that would be one thing. If we're just talking about political agenda. But what's happened now is that... We see one view, and that one view, maybe, if you believe what the critics say, that one view is eating itself up. It's, it's almost taking the best ideas away from real conservatives. Well, you see, you see one view in Washington, but I've, I've got to say it's got absolutely nothing to do with conservatism. It has nothing to do with Barry Goldwater. It has nothing to do with William F. Buckley. All it has to do is with power. It's with Republican loyalists who want to maintain the status quo, and they'll do it at any cost. Now, you've got problems with a president that I don't have. I've got problems with a president probably that you don't have. But the one thing we both know is that the people running the White House, people that are in power in Congress, will do anything to stay in power. party has just come off one of its roughest weeks ever. Some pundits are already writing off their chances to hold the House and Senate November. Some of their supporters are criticizing them publicly for the first time, including Christian fundamentalists and up to now loyal voters. But even diehard Democratic supporters are still wringing their hands. They just don't see the strength and organization necessary in the party to seize this opportunity. Okay, Democrats, listen up. David Gergen commands respects from both sides of the aisle. He has served as advisor and consultant to four presidents. In fact, Bill Clinton reached across to the other party to snap him up. He's director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Kennedy School of Government. In short, this guy is qualified to share this insight on how the Democrats can do their best in the coming election. David Gergen, thank you for making time for us. It's good to be here. Let me quote your own words back to you, May 06. I'll paraphrase slightly. The overriding issue isn't whether George Bush can climb back up the polls or who will win more congressional seats this fall. The real issue is whether we'll drift through nearly three years with a president wounded, a Congress divided, and a public disillusioned. What scenario do you see that can rescue us from that? Well, I think the distressing part of this is it's not easy to find one. Uh, the truth is that the... the 
the political system is about as dysfunctional as any time I can remember, and the threats to American well-being are about as big as any time I can remember. And that combination is uh, truly one that I think has a lot of Americans worried about their, their future and the future of their kids. Well, since I'm about to ask you how the Democrats can fare their best in the coming election, do you see that as part of the solution? Is it to the country's benefit if the Democrats get some, get some power back? Well, I certainly think it would be helpful to the country. Uh, I don't, I'm not particularly anxious to take sides on who ought to be elected, but I, but I do think this. I don't think that we can have the country governed by one party. I don't think we can win the war on terrorism with one party you know, running it and not, and not sharing in that responsibility. I, I believe very strongly that in times of uh, stress for the country that people need to come together and see if they can't work together so that if the Democrats come into power and all we have is a lot of squabbling over the next two years, that's not going to solve any more problems than we do if the Republicans retain power and we have a lot of squabbling. So part of the job is for the voters to elect those least inclined to squabble and those most inclined to actually do something. I think that's right. And to look for people who are genuinely interested in, and, and willing to work with uh, people and put down some of the ideological uh, uh, baggage that we all carry around with us these days and, and be willing to say, you know, I, I think if Washington can't fix the country, then the country has to fix Washington. If you've got people who are just ideologues and screamers and, you know, they're nothing more than a rubber stamp for the extremists on each side, then I don't think they ought to be in Congress. I mean, I think, that, I think that's a good reason to vote out the incumbents. Uh, and, and I don't think that's just an anti-Republican statement. What I do believe is the Republicans, as the governing party, uh, bear responsibility. I mean, they bear larger responsibility for what's been going on than do the Democrats because they've controlled the House, the Senate, the presidency, and indeed the Supreme Court. Uh, so, you know, when they have that kind of power, it has to be act- it has to be handled responsibly. And there are those Republicans out there today who would like the Democrats to win the House back, in part because they think the Republicans have become big spenders, free spenders, and they need some discipline. So this, there's some interesting cross currents in this election season. Right, the, the Republicans who are asking their own representatives to hold to their own standards as they declare yeah. them. And one of the reasons this, this, this Mark Foley scandal has been so heart-wrenching for Republicans is that what he did is so violative of their, their family values that, you know, they, many Democrats think they just trumpet them. But in fact, many people on the, on, on the right do strongly believe in those values, and, and they, they're revolted by what's happened. Well, since you bring up the Foley issue, I, I want to talk about the tenor of political debate today and the news coverage around it. We have Hastert showing up on Rush Limbaugh saying, we took care of Mr. Foley, we found out about it, asked him to resign, and he did resign. Then someone later pointed out to him that's not the order in which things happened. He resigned without talking to you. He said, oh, yeah, I misspoke myself. <laughs> now, the reason I bring this up yeah. is I'm asking you for advice for the Democrats, and this is the arena in which they have to function. So how can a party gird itself to make points in this kind of atmosphere? I think what you need is a group of people who are spokespeople for the party who are not wild and woolly. They're not screamers. They're not, you know, fringy left. But they're people who can command respect, who take to the airwaves and make the arguments in a reasoned, good, persuasive way. Don't get into the food fights. And I think there are a lot of Americans now open to alternative perspectives from what they've been hearing from the folks in charge. But they want to hear... If you're a Democrat, how would you do it differently? What is it you would do? Uh, and it's not enough to say throw the bums out. It's, it, 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 you do have to come along and say we have some alternative ways of doing this and, and doing it better. I think that's what's going to persuade people. You can't come in. You know, when the Republicans seized power back in 1980, which was a big takeover, and, and you know, I was, I was, I helped Reagan in that campaign of 1980. It made a huge difference as the opposition party, which was facing, after all, a Congress in the hands of the Democrats, a White House in the hands of the Democrats, and a Supreme Court in the hands of the Democrats. It helped a heck of a lot for Reagan to have some ideas. It wasn't just sort of, you know, you know Carter's ineffectual, throw the bums out. It was rather, he's ineffectual, now here's what we ought to be doing. And Reagan had a mandate as a result of that to govern. I think it's a real mistake for the Democrats to think, well, all we have to do is get back into power. That's not sufficient. You've got to, when you get into power, you've got to know what you're going to do. I, I teach you, I've just been teaching classes here at the Kennedy School where we have both Republicans and Democrats as well as a lot of international students. And one of the big arguments I'm making is that if you're a conservative, you need to know how the conservative movement built up over 20 years, how they came out of the wilderness after Goldwater. But if you're a Democrat, you better understand how they did it too. 
because mm-hmm. they built up think tanks, they built up an elaborate set of ideas, they built up foot soldiers, they had a whole lot of things that they did that they turned this into a movement. And what the, what the progressive side has to do is create a movement, much like the progressive movement back in the late uh, 1890s and early part of the 20th century, which was so successful with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. It was a movement about social change and. Yeah, I happen to believe we need a lot of social change in this country. Well, what uh, about the accusation that the Democrats may be carrying th- those standards in their hearts, but they don't stand up and make noise when it's necessary? For example, let's let's go to the treatment of detainees. I thought they were I thought they were spineless on the treatment of detainees. You know, come on, this is serious business. I know there were arguments on the floor of the Senate, and people made some eloquent arguments, and people like Senator Kennedy were particularly eloquent in opposing that legislation. But there was, you know, when it came time to negotiate with the White House, the only thing we saw up there saying this bill is wrong were three Republicans. Mm-hmm. We saw John Warner and John McCain and, and, and Lindsey Graham. And where were the Democrats who also opposed it? So when the deal was cut, it was cut with only Republicans and Democrats who got the shaft on the thing. And 12 Democrats crossed the aisle on the vote and were not held to account. They weren't pilloried as, as one might think they ought to be. Well, I did, well, I'm not sure people ought to be pilloried, but I do think that they, you know, when they, when they break party ranks. Uh, but I do think that if you as a party oppose something, you've got to stand up and say it. Uh, and when I think they were intimidated by what happened on Homeland Security Bill back in 2002 in a similar situation, as you'll remember, Republicans got pushed into, by Joe Lieberman and others, got pushed into introducing a Homeland Security Bill in 2002, just before the elections. And then they put what, what Bill Clinton's called a poison pill in there that made some Democrats vote against the bill on Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And because it had this obnoxious provision in there, and, and they, the Democrats wanted to knock out. And so when Max Cleland voted against the Homeland Security bill, here's a guy who lost, Democratic senator from Georgia, lost three limbs in, uh, in Vietnam, and they went after him as being soft on, social, on national security, and they knocked him out as a senator. It was an outrage. And we're seeing a better response this time around with Tammy Duckworth, who's facing the same kind of criticism. She said, don't you dare tell oh, me I'm cutting run. Absolutely. She's in a very tough race. They, you know, that's an even-steven race out there right now in Illinois. But it's, it's one of the races that re- the Democrats have to win if they're going to take the House back. Mm-hmm. And in you, they, the Democrats have been smart this time. They've done, they, let, I mean, we always, you know, a lot of people run down the Democratic Party. Give them credit for going out and finding uh, veterans of the war to run. I think they've got nine running this time on the Democratic mm-hmm. side. That's really smart. That's good politics. That's smart politics. And I think they have done some things uh, right. I, I was one of the people who stood up after Bill Clinton was on the air with Chris Wallace to say, you know, Clinton was mad and maybe he lost his sure, but boy, he sure told, he sure sent a signal to Democrats about how to fight back. Yes. Don't, don't take it lying down. Don't get rolled. And I really have enjoyed my stay. But I must be moving on Like a king without a castle Like a queen without a throne I'm a dirty morning lover And I must be moving on Now I believe in what you say Is the undisputed Richard Vigory, he's chairman of conservativehq.com. He's the author of a new book, Conservatives Betrayed, How George W. Bush and Other Big Government Republicans Hijacked the Conservative Cause. For our purposes, important for you to know, this is a man who for 40 years has been perfecting a way to wield power within his party from outside of his party through the development of a small donor mechanism. He says it empowers the grassroots. I don't know whether it empowered them so much as gave a way for uh, ideologues such as himself to extract money from the grassroots and use it to uh, advance the careers of politicians whose uh, agendas they approved of. Um, but he did it, no question about it. You have seen an overhaul of uh, republicanism, of conservatism in America. In his book, he writes, in the 60s, we conservatives learned how to nominate a conservative, Barry Goldwater, for the presidency. During the 70s and 80s, 
We conservatives learned how to nominate and elect a conservative, Ronald Reagan, as president. The remaining task for conservatives is to nominate and elect a president who will govern as a conservative. They don't think that's what George W. Bush is doing. What about on the social side, though, Richard Vigory? You may be angry about big government conservatives, but what about uh, big religion conservatives? You, back in the 70s, were talking about the need for people to work every day to save the Western world. Um, as I understand it, you once took your kids out of not only one of the best public schools in, Washington, in the Washington area, but out of the local Catholic school because they were shown films on ecology. Are you happy with uh, anything that's been wrought by this administration on the advance of uh, the Christian religion as their interpretation? Well, their, uh, this administration or any administration that I can think of has never been about the advancement of, uh, of the Christian religion. What we uh, have seen uh, starting in the 70s is one of the things that's really hurt the Democrats is that they were seen as being hostile to religion. And uh, we really, in separation of church and state, the idea is that government will stay out of religion, not that religion will not try to influence government. That's been a, a mischaracterization by the left. And it's been a serious problem for the left, and they will never, never, never be a majority party as long as they are seen as hostile to, uh, to religion. All right, well, now you've got government money going to churches to aid Katrina victims, government money going to churches to aid uh, poor people, government money going to churches to uh, keep condoms away from HIV-positive people. Are you happy? Uh, I don't think that uh, government should weigh in on uh, many of the issues that you articulated there. Uh, I'm not happy with faith-based uh, uh, program the president is putting forward. I don't think... Uh, conservative uh, churches should be on the dole any more than liberal organizations should be on the dole. Uh, I opposed uh, the left uh, getting massive amounts of money through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even into the 21st century from the government. I opposed conservative organizations getting that money as well. Interesting. Now, I'm not hearing that critique articulated as loudly as the fiscal constraint critique. Am I just missing it? Oh, no. Uh, the, uh, the conservatives uh, who... You don't have much access to the microphones, uh, share my thoughts, uh, but the big government Republicans, they're trying to, uh, they're all about Laura Power. And if they can uh, engage in what I call legal theft, uh, take people's money for the sole immoral purpose of holding on to power, they will do it. They will pass it out to churches or anybody else, farmers, uh, teachers, uh, anybody uh, that will take the money. Uh, when in 2001, when Karl Rove and George Bush and friends came to town, Republicans in Congress as well, they seemed to adopt a one-word strategy for governing. And that one-word strategy was bribery. You've got votes. We've got money. Let's talk. And so they've just been about the business of throwing money to anybody out there who will, uh, who will take it. And that's legalized theft. It's immoral. Whatever the Duke Cunningham and the Bob Nays of the world have done is wrong, but, and they'll be punished accordingly, but it doesn't really affect my children or grandchildren's life or your viewers' life or their children or grandchildren. But this legal theft that the Republicans have engaged in could bring about the ruination of our country. Just for, in one piece of legislation, they added eight trillion dollars of debt as far as we can see into the future for the sole immoral purpose in my opinion of holding on to power that was the prescription drug benefit they passed in 2003 to take the senior vote off the table in the 2004 election that's immoral i don't care if it's a republican that does it or a democrat that's just wrong you know i, I will say those 40 to 50 percent of the conservative leaders that i talked to at the national and state level either want the Republicans to lose this uh, November or they're ambivalent about it. Uh, they just are so angry and so furious at the immorality and the corruption of the national Republican leaders. And by the way, that's been an advantage that Republicans, excuse me, that conservatives have had uh, for many, many years in that we had some terrible losses. Uh, the Republican Party did in 1964, 1974, 1976, 1992 uh, with George H.W. Bush. And what that did is cleaned out a lot of dead wood, just like a, 
uh, someone who has an orchard knows you have to prune very good the limbs in February, March if you want good fruit in the fall. And the left hasn't had uh, those type of disasters where they've cleaned out the uh, the old dead wood, the Teddy Kennedys of the world, uh, so that you can allow new uh, uh, people to come in and, and take charge. Well, oh, I'm going to ask you. That. To, I'm going to ask you to to suspend maybe your your own sense of dis- disbelief, but I would argue they're only kind of is a couple of Kennedys in Congress right now, and we've got a slew of defeats. Talk to me about strategy and tactics. Democrats today are, are hearing again now, as we will consistently from now until 08, regardless of what happens this November, that you know this is no time to be fighting within the party. What's your advice to those who you don't agree with, but who have a more progressive vision of the direction in which this country should go in, and who aren't satisfied with the leadership right now coming from the uh, Rahm Emanuel's and uh, Hillary Clinton's? Well, you know, I, all I can say, Laura, is what the conservatives did. We took the long-range view. We didn't uh, put all our eggs in the election, uh, any one election. We said, you know, this is not a, uh, a sprint, it's a marathon. And uh, we took that approach. And one thing that I'm telling my conservative friends here, I was at, don't fear defeat. Uh, we've had defeats before, and almost invariably after a big defeat, we've had our best successes. Reagan's election in, in uh, 1980, the Republican uh, Congress in 94. So don't be, if you're a Democrat, don't be worried about uh, losing election. Take a long-range uh, view. But you have to have a plan. You can't go out there and just uh, throw everything into one election and, and hope it works out. You've got to have a plan. That, Newt Gingrich had a plan when he got to Congress in 1979. Sounds like you might be uh, backing Howard Dean's. 50-state plan. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, I, I'm not in the business of uh, giving advice to uh, uh, to the Democrats. I, I know uh, and, and admire in many ways uh, Howard Dean, and uh, I uh, I would uh, bet on him maybe more than I would some of the other Democrats uh, that you've uh, had failed leadership from uh, in recent years. Now it's time to get away. Let us dance and celebrate another night at the club. Joe Scarborough. He's a former Republican congressman from Florida, and he's the host of Scarborough Country on MSNBC. My memory of the history is you and a, a band of people that understood what a risk Newt Gingrich was to the Republican Party said, we got to draw the line here. We have to do something right. about that now. Now, what, what threat did you see with Newt Gingrich back then? Well, I think the biggest problem was that he was going back on his word. He came in and he said that we were going to reduce the size and scope of federal bureaucracy. We were going to balance the budget. We were going to cut spending. And yet he was allowing spending to grow at pretty explosive rates. Bill Clinton, God bless him, was out negotiating time and time again. You know, Gingrich even admitted one time. He just threw his arms up in there. He said, guys, I've never seen anything like okay. it. It's like Bill Clinton will ask for your wallet. You'll hand him the wallet. He'll look through it, take all your cash, give you the money back. And you'll feel bad okay. because you don't have more money to give it. <laughs> that is true. That is, that is the real Clinton. If anything, I look back to that when you were freshman right. in Congress. I look back to that time. There was anything but a lockstep mentality. It saved the Republican Party. Not, not only that, we were getting brutalized every day by the press. The mainstream media would kick the absolute crap out of us every day. And we held together. And you know what we found out was? Everybody's predicting we're going to lose in 96, lose in 98. What we found out was, actually, the New York Times, who hated, hated where we stood on the positions, wrote an editorial after two years, after the shutdown and all the fighting. They say, you know what? Say what you will about these Republican freshmen, but at least they do what we've been asking politicians to do for years. They tell you what they believe. They don't listen to their critics. And they charge ahead because they believe 
and limited government. Let me tell you something. I knew Trent Lott before he was majority leader. I liked Trent Lott. Trent Lott would get on Meet the Press and everybody else would be BSing around. Trent Lott would just say it the way he believed it. And I'm sorry. I'm a redneck from the, the, the panhandle of Pensacola. <laughs> Scarborough country. I'm from Scarborough country. Trent Lott's from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. There are a lot of things we agreed on. But then he became majority leader. I didn't recognize him. Then he got booted out what as majority what, leader. What happens? What happens is, all of a sudden, they're in the swankiest office in the Capitol. They've got this bitching view of the, the Washington Mall. They can see all the monuments. Everybody calls them majority leader. And all of a sudden, they're like, I, I've got to remain majority leader. Or I've got to remain speaker. It's like Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is a guy in 1993 that conservatives listen to. Go, you know what? That guy makes a lot of sense. Three years later... They didn't recognize him. Joe, I've heard you say that is that hate Bush is not enough uh, for the Democrats to, to do anything yeah. meaningful in politics. And you know the thing, talk thing, about that. And, I, and let me just say, Mike, I mean, you and I have had screaming matches before because you hate Bush. And I understand that. And I just, I'm here to tell you, it's okay. <laughs> it is okay. For instance, I was so wrapped up. And my dislike of Bill Clinton, that in 1995 and 96, every time I went on the TV, I just my face would scrunch up, and I'd and I looked at myself one time. It's like God, I'm not going to get anything done that way. And you got to work through it. Say, okay, why don't I like Bill Clinton? Why don't I like George Bush? And then you present an alternative vision for Americans. So when I step forward and try to tell my Democratic friends, like I'm doing, I found out that just saying no is not enough. You have to have an alternative plan for the country, and that will be rewarded. Hate Newt Gingrich if you want to hate Newt Gingrich. Not talking about you, talking about your audience. But Newt Gingrich in 1994 said, if you elect us, this is our budget. They put together a budget. This is our budget. This is how we're going to balance the budget. They said, these are the first ten legislative bills we're going to try to pass in the first 100 days. But we don't see that here, do we? We don't, see, we don't see it with progressives. We don't see it with Democrats. Because they're spineless. What, what, but, but do you think it's they're spineless or they're, they're just spineless. getting bad advice? No, no, they're spineless. It's like Al Gore in 2000. If I were Al Gore's campaign manager, I'd say, Al, you do what you do best. You talk about what you believe in the most. What would that have been? That would have been the environment. But guess what his political consultants told him? They said, Vice President Gore, don't talk about the environment because you're going to piss off people in West Virginia. You're going to lose West Virginia. You can't lose West Virginia. Don't talk about gun control because you're going to make people in Tennessee angry. And so instead of Al Gore going out saying what he believed, he held back. We saw and we didn't see the real Al Gore until the night he conceded. And that made me, by that time, of course, I'm a Republican congressman at the time. I can't stand the guy. I see Al Gore on TV. And I stood up, you know, I stood up, got out of my chair and said, oh, my God, where's that guy been the whole yeah, campaign? Yeah, we, we saw the same thing with with Johnny Edwards. I know I did a show during the election. I actually covered a couple of those uh, debates. And I remember coming back and saying, who is this guy? Yeah. What what did they create? And I don't think it's the candidate's fault. I think uh, and it's both sides. You know, it's, so, it's, so, always, it's, it's, always, it's always a candidate's fault, though. You know why? Because a candidate only allows a handler to be a handler if a candidate allows a handler to handle him. <laughs> I had people telling me all the time what to do, and I would respect their opinion, but if it was the wrong thing for me, I'd say, no, I'm not going to do it. You can't cross, you know, you can't cross your own speaker. You know, they're going to kill you, Joe. I mean, I heard that so often. Well, you look at, you look at the candidates now. I look at, at, at last, I, we see now Kerry out talking about the fact that he's going to fight back the swift boat uh, folks. It's a little late. Uh, tell me, Mike. Tell me. I want a Democrat to tell me. What was John Kerry's position on Iraq in 2004? We never heard it. Let me tell you what it should have been. It should have been this. And this is what every Democrat should say right now. You know what? I made a mistake. I supported this war. The president showed me intelligence. The CIA told me intelligence. It was wrong. I am sorry I believed them, and I saw, I'm sorry I cast my vote. But let's not look to the past. Let's look to the future. This war is costing us $1.5 billion a week. Generals are saying that it will be 12 years before we can turn things around in Iraq. That means children who are in third grade sitting at bus stops will be dying in Baghdad 12 years from now. Enough is enough. 
We've given them three elections. We've given them 2,500 American lives. We've given, given them $300 billion. We are bankrupting ourselves. We are sacrificing our youths. We want democracy in Iraq, too. And damn it, we've done enough to get them on that path. You tell me what Democrat would not win with that message. You well, go ahead. Give me George Bush's response to that. Well, what would George Bush say? There, there virtually is no response. He would say it would spiral out of control. And well, I would say, Mr. President, I've talked to troops on the ground who told me that despite the fact we're paying $1.5 billion a week, despite the fact generals are saying we've got to be there for 12 more years, that it is spiraling out of control. It is becoming a civil war. We have no answer except for the fact that we can't respond to our threat so, in Iran. What, we can't respond to our threat in North Korea. We can't respond to our threats in Venezuela. We are being mocked on the world stage because we are being tied down by an ill-fated policy that, yes, I voted for. And I apologize that I voted for it. But you know what? There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, no matter how far you are down a path, if it's the wrong path, turn around. i got to promise you, Joe. I have to promise you, what you just said sells. But the problem is, by the time the candidate gets it, everything you just said would be dumbed down to the fact that the, the public barely recognizes You know what it. I don't get, though? Ned Lamont called a liberal, called a radical by Republicans. Democrats. But my question is this. What is so dangerous about adopting a policy position that 65% of Americans support? Has anything happened, really, that moves you to believe that there's any major ground shift that's going to be hugely important to Democrats this next cycle, November? I think Democrats could take control of the House, possibly the Senate. The problem is they're running scared right now. What are they afraid of? I, I think they have been so brutalized over the past 20 years. You know what they're afraid of? To take a stand. They are afraid to take a stand because they have grown to believe that they are out of step with middle America. They don't get it. Why was John Kerry tiptoeing around? Why is Hillary Clinton moving to the center so much that she's losing part of her base? If Hillary Clinton's elected president of the United States, she will continue George Bush's policy in Iraq. It is that simple. There is no way it'll be like John Kennedy in Vietnam, where Kennedy was not going to draw down the advisors that Ike sent to Vietnam because right-wingers would say that he was weak on defense. Do you think some guy in Ohio that's working the third shift at a, a GM plant knows what Joe Biden's position is on mm. the war? Mm -hmm. No! Mm -hmm. They need a leader to step forward and say, just what I said, this is how the Democrats are different from George Bush. Thanks for listening, everybody. So uh, last week, I posed the question about why um, Jews get such a bad rap in this world and, and, you know, why so many people hate them and what, what in the world are we hating them for anyways. And I got plenty of responses about it. And really the only interesting thing about all of those responses is that none of them were very interesting in that no one really had any idea. You know, there was, um, I mean, it's kind of what I touched on a little bit, it's that they um, are overachievers, maybe. I mean, that that's the... The, the cliche, at least, you know, they run the banks and the media and uh, secretly run the world. And so they uh, they have to be hated and torn down by people who don't think they measure up. Um, but then, of course, uh, they, they killed Jesus. So, you know, all the Christians hate the Jews, even though Jesus was <clears throat> Jewish, if he uh, even existed. And... Um, so, I mean, basically what it comes down to is they, uh, the Jews, they killed Jesus and they've been overachieving ever since. And so the anti-Semites of the world, which are basically the, the bullies of the schoolyard, just have to uh, tear them down to feel better about themselves, I guess. That's, um, that's pretty much the boiled down analysis. And, and it was kind of funny, you know, I, I kind of this weekend... I, I posed that question to as many people as I could find, you know, friends and 
parents and uh, kind of everyone in between was like, hey, do you know why people hate Jews? They're like, eh, yeah, no, not really. So it's uh, one of those great mysteries of the universe, but uh, I'm sure it'll be around to discuss for, uh, you know, a, at least a few thousand more years. So uh, we have that to look forward to. So if you have any opinions on this or any other issue in the uh, world of politics and beyond, uh, go ahead and give us a call on our new voicemail line at 206-984-3907. You know, all the comments I get uh, coming into the, the email address at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, you know, that's all great. I love getting those emails for sure, but it's not very conducive to actually getting your opinions heard by uh, anyone other than me, essentially. So, um, you know, if you, if you got something to say and, and you want to be heard, call that voicemail line. It'll get played on the show and uh, your your message will actually make it out there. So um, I, I definitely encourage that. You can find information about it, of course, at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. The number again, 206 984 39 07. Also, of course, you can join it at the uh, Best of the Left Community Forum, at, and you can find that through the website as well. I know maybe it's a little overwhelming, all of these great new ways to uh, get in contact with me or the show or the audience or fellow listeners or new friends you didn't know you had yet, but, you know, you you take a couple of minutes of your day and you, you decide to get involved and and contribute in one way or another, and before you know it, you, you got a whole uh, heap of new friends that uh, were just waiting for you to show up. So it's uh, definitely exciting things going on. Uh, get involved in one way or another before some uh, horrible catastrophe uh, strikes and, um, you know, I'm dragged away to a concentration camp or something. You, you, you never know. Like, we, we all live under the, the assumption that that day will come. So, um, you know jump in before uh, the great downfall basically so uh, on that uplifting note uh, I will uh, speak to you all soon have a good one everybody Oh